Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. I think it's a page 1013 if you have a Red Pew Bible in front of you. I gave you this paper, or if you got one tonight, you might have looked at it and said, what in the world is that? One of my goals in preaching, and I'm able to do a little bit more specifically on informal nights like tonight, is not only help you get something out of the Word, but help you to get something out of the Word. So I want you to not just look for life application, but how to do the right interpretation. So this is my, this is basically generically, if I, when I do a sermon, uh, this is my skeletal view of things. Um, I do two things. I exegete scripture. Exegete means to tear things apart and see how you, they are put together and how they connect. So I spend time doing all of this homework. So I do homework on Monday and Tuesday, and then I do exegete life on Wednesday. And then tomorrow, I'll exegete scripture for Sunday school and Sunday morning. And then on Friday, I mean, and Saturday, I'll exegete life. So that's how it works for me, how I put together. The best applications come from the right interpretation and I think that, unfortunately, we go to the Bible saying, what am I going to get out of this today? And I, I think that's, can I say it nicely, wrong-headed. I, I think it's the cart before the horse. The best applications come from spending time and seeing what it says and what it means to the original audience and all that goes with it. And it's worth taking time and, and money and, and skill to develop those abilities and the Bible will become more meaningful to you. So I'm going to show you just briefly, and then we're going to put it all together. I left the Exegete Life page blank for you so that you can write down some things that we learned tonight from how to live this out. Basically, why we started small groups and do them the way we do, we want to be able to have you take the sermon and not just understand it, but in a context of community to be able to talk about uh, your intentional plans on how to live it. If you, have, if you read the Bible every day, and at the end of the time, you don't take five or ten minutes to sketch out how you're going to do it today, you will find that you will think that the Bible isn't relevant. And it doesn't speak to your life, and you don't really get it. Uh, you need to strategize about what you're going to do to live it. It doesn't just come. You have to plan it intentionally. So we'll do, we'll do both of these tonight. And, and the lines, I'll explain them to you if you can't grasp all of it. Um, 5, 7 through 11, I put them on here. And so it says, be patient, therefore. Uh, therefore points back to the previous verses. Why do you have to be patient? Because read verses 1 through 6. Because in their context, rich people were mistreating them very severely. So much so that the end of verses 1 through 6, it says that God is going to judge them because they fatten their hearts for the day of judgment. And so they're in serious trouble because rich people were using their money and clout and position and power to take advantage of lesser people who had less money, inferior positions in life, and many of them were Christians. And God says, how do you withstand that for long periods of time without it changing? 
That's what our text is about. How do you handle difficulties and trials of people and difficult circumstances and situations that you face that regularly occur that don't ever seem to have a stopping point? So he says, here's how you do it. Here's how you are serious. Don't quit. He says, be patient, therefore. Okay? And now, he, what he says there is brothers. And he says it in verse 9, because I drew a line, see it? He also says it in verse 10. And I looked it up. He says it 15 times. I wrote all of them down on your paper for you. 15 times that beloved brethren or brothers is used. You know why? Because it marks off. This is a community letter. So here, let me give you, if you're doing exegeting life, here's what you do. You know how you get through trials? Not by yourself. You know why we come to church and why you need to come to church? Because tonight, I'm going to show you a little bit later, we need patterns and models of people who live lives going through difficult times that you can look at and emulate. That's the idea when it says, take brethren, the prophets, and Job as examples of suffering and affliction. That's what it says. So you need, you need to hear tonight about people who couldn't have children and had all the struggles and then waiting for people to come from the outside of the country thinking it'd be immediately and it took a decade. So you need to hear people's stories about, oh yeah, you know what, financially, my job, see, waiting for someone I'm going to marry. See, we, we need to hear those things and you don't hear them when you're sitting at home. So here's what Brother says. We fight to be patient and we work at not quitting together. That's the best way that we do it. He says next, until the coming of the Lord. That phrase is used also in the very next verse. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He doesn't say that phrase, but the same idea is in the very next book because he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, Jesus is so close to coming and judging. It's like he's standing outside the door. That's how close it is, he says. So there's an eschatology to patience. There's an eschatology to bearing under difficult circumstances and not quitting. You know why? We're going to say two things tonight. If I was doing an outline, and I am, here's my outline. If you're going to be able to, in the present time to not quit and be patient, you're going to do, do two things. You're going to need to look to the future. Jesus is coming. And you're going to need to look to the past. Prophets and Job. See, you're going to have to have your eye, one eye in the future and one eye in the past. And when you do that, that's how you'll make it in the present. See, that's what, that's what the text is going to say to us. But you see that because, see, it says the coming of the Lord, standing at the door. We've got to look forward because God's going to reverse stuff. He's going to come someday and all the wrongs that plague your life, he's going to set them right. And you've got to believe that, he says. So notice, he says, an ex example, and I put the little word C in verse 7. It is the exact same word, and I'm not sure unless it's for a variety of English grammar. It's the same word as behold in both verse 9 and 11. It's the, I don't know why they translate it C. It should be behold. Um, but it's, all three are the same. And every time you see the word behold, it is what I put on your paper, an attention grabber. In other words, the teacher would go like this. Wake up. Don't miss this. Right? So here's what the teacher says. Right? Says, see this? Let me give you an example of waiting for the good thing to happen. He says, let me tell you about farmers. You know what farmers do in the Middle East? There's two major rain periods. The early rain happens in November and December, and then you plant the stuff, 
and then you got to wait because you only get drizzles and small amounts of rain, if any, between the two. And then you get rain way back later, six months later, in April and May. You get more rain. And if you get the latter rains, then there'll be a harvest, and you'll be able to get food, and you'll be able to make it and make money and, and provide for your family. But if you don't get the early and latter rains, you're done. That's why when Elijah, remember, they didn't have rain for three years. I mean, people were dying. Rain is pretty life-threatening if you don't get it in the Middle East. So here's what he says. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rains. And so you got it. See, here's the first rain. And now the whole time for six months, you know what you're doing? You're on your knees. Please, God, please bring the rain. Please bring the rain so we can eat and food. There was a temple ceremony in John 7, 37. It's commemorated. And they would take a golden bowl and they would walk up from the temple down to the pool of Siloam and they would dip the water and then they would bring it back and they would pour it out. And that was the thing, that, that was the prayer and the cry of the high priest would say, God, please bring the rain. And that middle of that ceremony when he's pouring out the water and asking God to quench the ground and, and, and the thirst of everyone and everything, Jesus says what? If you believe in me, out of your belly will flow rivers of water. And here's what he's saying. I'm that. I'm the water you're looking for. See how he does that? That's Jesus. And so here's what the writer says. You have to, in your life, have you ever, let me ask you, here's an exegetical point. Ready? Have you ever had to wait between the two rains? Have you ever had to wait and said, well, God did this, but I still need him to do this. You know, I have an opportunity for a job, they haven't called me back yet. You know, the doctor said, let me run some tests. <laughs> but you're waiting for the results, right? You're considered for a position or a raise. And they said, you're one of three. And you're still waiting for them to tell you if you made it or not. You know, it's hard, isn't it? Between the first rain and the second rain. I mean, this is the text that says, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, guess what? A lot of bad things can happen. A lot of difficulties can take place. And here's what James says. You have to learn to be patient that you will trust the Lord that he's going to bring the rain that's going to cause the crops to grow. So he says in verse 8, you also be patient. See, like the farmer is, you be patient. Now let me tell you this. I wrote in my notes. The word patient here is a Greek word. It doesn't mean anything to you. I understand it, but I want to tell you, it's a compound word. It means large, tempered, macro, like macro lens on your camera. Everything seems big. Macrothumia, which is feelings. Here's what it means. You have a long temper. In other words, you're not getting upset quickly. You're not losing it. As we talked about last week, you're not walking around. Is God, oh, is he going to give me this food? Is he going to give me this drink? Where is God with my clothes? Where is God going to help me pay this bill? I don't walk around like that. You know what it says? I'm long-tempered. Long-tempered. Macro, it means I'm patient. I don't lose it. I don't throw up my hands in disgust. And then the other word he chooses to use in this text, he talks about Job. It's steadfastness. Steadfastness means that I keep putting myself under something. And the two words, this is a compound word, and it's made up of two words, under and remain. In other words, here's the pressure of my job. Here's the pressure of my kids not obeying, and my marriage isn't what it ought to be, and my finances, 
and the pressure of all of it. And when you are patient and you're letting God work in your life, see, you'll keep yourself under the problem because God's using the problem to form your life. But the temptation is, I want to get out from under it. I don't want to feel this way anymore. I don't want to have those circumstances. I'm tired of this person talking to me like this and doing these things in my life. And God says, see, here's the problem. Here's how you quit. You get out from under the problem before I'm done using it to shape your life. That's why Job is an example later on in the text. Because he lost everything he owned. He lost all of his children. Even his wife told him to curse God and die. His friends thought he was the problem. And in all that, the Bible says Job did not sin. He didn't question God the wrong way, at first at least. right? And he stayed under. John Piper gives this definition of patience, and I've always thought it to be very helpful. He says, patience is being in God's place, going at God's pace, all by God's grace. Let me say it again to you. Patience is being in God's place. In other words, being where God wants me to be. And here's the hard part. Here's the rub. Ready? And sometimes that means under pressure. And it doesn't go away. You stay under that. That's where God wants you to be. And I know it's easy to flip jobs and quit and go somewhere else where the grass is greener and things are better and to ditch your marriage because you have, you'd rather have someone else who treats you right. I understand all that. But here's patience. Here's what patience is. Being in God's place. See, Sarah was in God's place, but she didn't like it. So she had Abraham get another wife and to do what she couldn't do instead of waiting for God to provide. You know why? Because she didn't want to wait. She didn't want to wait. So she took things into her own hand, like single people who want to get married, and so they end up dating someone they should never date or marry an unsaved person. You know why? Because they don't want to be in that place. But it's God's place in their life. But they're not willing to stay under it, to let God work in their lives to accomplish those things. So being in God's place, going at God's pace, that's the hard part, isn't it? I remember when Mackenzie got, we got notification that she had to have all those ear surgeries. Of course, you know, at the time, we didn't know she was having any surgeries. And then she had one surgery. I didn't, who knew it would be nine or whatever, quite a bit, whatever it turned out to be. But God's pace, I mean, you go to the surgery, you go back again, and they go back again, and you go back again, and keep going back and back and back and back, and you keep going back. Right? You don't know when it's over. And that's the hard part, going at God's pace, staying under the pressure. And it's okay, we say this, God, I can stay under the pressure for this week. Right? I can do it for this month. Right? But what about chronic people? That's why one of my heroes is Nancy Rallone. She's had chronic lung issues forever. I call her. She's in the hospital literally probably every month, if not every other month, maybe. She goes, and when she goes in, she knows it's going to be two weeks because it's mandatory. And I always call her and I ask her, how you doing? She goes, oh, I can't believe I'm still alive. God is so good to me. And I'll go to cheer her up, and she tells me how great things are, and she ends up cheering me up. You know what? That's the pace God gave her, and she knows it. That's the, God's pace isn't always ours, is it? It's not easy to go slow and to 
wait for God. And then all by God's grace, we just want to flex our muscles, don't we? We want to say, I can handle this. I've got the power. I've got the ability. Notice the verse, can you? In verse 8, chapter 5, he says, You also be patient. Listen, establish your hearts. Now, I put them on your, see on your paper? Uh, One, two, three, five times hearts are mentioned in the book of James. Your heart can be deceived. Your heart can be filled with bitter envy and jealousy and selfish ambition, 314. Your heart can come from someone who's double-minded and it needs purified because you're a hypocrite. In chapter 5 and verse 5, and I think this is what the main one is, the contrast is these rich people who really don't know God were being brutal to other people, mainly Christians, and God says they're fattening up their hearts for a day of slaughter, like you're getting a pig ready to slaughter it. And there's a difference between fat heart, fattened hearts and faithful hearts. That's what God says we should have. So the question is, and James wants to pose it to all of us, is what's in your heart? He wants to know that because that's what matters. And the word establish is the command, and it's the English word we get steroids from. And so here's what he says. You need to get some spiritual steroids inside of you. And what you need is not the strength that you muster up from the outside and pull it up by your bootstraps and tell everybody, oh, I'm just going to weather this storm and I'm going to get through it. Because not like that. That's not, that kind of, that's not the kind of strength we're looking for. No, this is a heart strength. This is a spiritual steroid strength. This is a strength that comes from a relationship with God. Not because you're macho. Not because you're not going to let anybody know for a second that you've got a weakness and that you're a man, and that means you never cry. Not that kind of stuff. Now, here's what he says. You need some spiritual steroids on the inside. He says you need to establish your heart. Verse 8 says at the end, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So here's what he says. See, if you're going to be patient, you're not going to quit. You're going to get through trials and loss in such a way that honors God. You're going to have to have a future aspect. You're going to have to look ahead and say, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to save me and judge others, and he's going to set it all right, meaning, therefore, I don't have to take it into my hands. I don't have to be strong. I just need to trust God that when he comes back, he's going to do exactly what he says. And in between his two comings, here's what I do. I wait. I wait on him to do what I can never do. Because the judge is at the door. He'll take care of it. You don't have to take care of the people who make you be patient. You don't have to get in their face. You don't have to take things in your own hands. You don't have to take vengeance. You don't have to get back at them. You don't have to one-up them. You don't have to do any of those things. Why? Because I'm trusting that Jesus is going to take care of that. So I may look like I'm the loser. I may look like I'm the weak person. And I may lose battles here. But we're talking ultimate So when Jesus comes back, it'll make all the difference in the world. So we learn on our paper that the next thing he says in verse 9 is, do not grumble against one another. Now here's the temptation, ready? And if if you have a job, guys and ladies both, and it's got a lot of pressure on it, and you've got people at work that it's really a struggle to be patient with, and you have a hard time with them, and you have long days, you take the train, you come back late, everybody's waiting, you know, you miss supper because they've already eaten without you at home, 
And you do that enough times, what do you come home like? Oh, I love these 12-hour days. I can't wait. I wish I'd have another month of them. Is that what you are? No. What happens? You have problems at work which become what? Yep. Problems at home. So you get all the pressure and the problems of people at work, and you come home, and what do you do? Well, you take it out on your family sometimes. Now, I'm too tired. I'm not helping you set the table. I just want to sit on the TV. Can't you understand how hard I work? As if your wife doesn't do anything or your husband doesn't do anything else. So here's what he says. You know what's the temptation when you're trying to stay under? You're trying to be long-tempered? He says, ready, verse 9, don't grumble, don't grumble against one another. In other words, let me modify it. You go to work and you have all these problems and difficulties and with people and circumstances, and then you can come to your church family and take it out on them. That's what he's saying. Don't grumble, and the word is complain. Don't talk, come to church and just gripe. Oh, you know, I can't believe they did that. Oh, come on. I oh, see it. Can you believe her and all oh, these people and... Here's what it says. That's what happens. Now, now, why is that a problem? And how much of a problem is it? So that, he says, see, don't complain against people. Why? Because then you'd be acting like a lost person. That's why. That's, that's serious, right? Serious, right? He says, behold, so you don't be judged. Now, the judge is standing at the door, and he's going to judge all those people who are lost people that make your life ridiculous. And they use their money and power, see, and and power over you. See, he's going to come back and take care of all those things. But don't you start getting in with them. Don't start acting like them so that he has to come back and judge you too, he says. So here's what he wants you to do. Stop the complaining. Stop the griping, he says. Because remember, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set it all straight. And the judge is standing at the door. And, and that was our, see, I put on the paper, that's your second behold. The second time he said, and he doesn't want you to miss this because he doesn't want you to take complaining lightly. Don't complain about the nursery or or, oh, VBS, they should do this when you don't help out there, right? Don't complain about this. And you're not, are you going to be part of the solution or just stand back and say, hey, that's a problem? Or are you going to do something, he said. See, if you're, you're going to complain, he says, listen, the judge stands up. Behold, he says, get it attention. Listen, because you're going to invite him to judge you if you keep doing that stuff, he says. That's the second behold, and that's on your notes exegetically. Then he gives you the second half of the message in verses 10 and 11. He says, as an example, they used to have when you were a kid in the first century that you'd have a, like a template when you learned to write. And they would put the template down and then they'd put the paper on top of it. And then you would learn to write letters by tracing over the template onto your paper. Okay. That became your model or your pattern, your hupodigmai. That's the word in the Greek. It means an example. So here's an example. And you put your paper on the example and you learn to write exact, you imitate exactly what the example is. So here's what Jesus says. How do you, in your trials and your losses and your problems, how do you power under, how do you stay under, 
How do you have long-tempered so you let God form you and make you into what he wants you to be through those things instead of quitting and getting out from under it? You know how you, you have to have a pattern. And I call them patterns of patience. In the Bible, and there are many. And he starts out generically in verse 10. Notice what it says. Take, brothers, the prophets. He doesn't really name any of them, probably because they all <laughs> were beaten up or martyred for their saying what God wanted them to say. So they, he says they spoke in the name of the Lord. So, by the way, that wasn't popular. Jeremiah was in prison. Isaiah was put in a log and caught, cut in half. I mean, that's chronicled for us in Hebrews 11. I mean, the prophets were, by and large, ostracized. So he says, take a look at all the prophets who spoke up for Jesus. And if you're going to speak up for Jesus, first century, fast forward 21st century, if you're going to live for God, that's going to cause problems and people are going to abuse you. And and, and I'm going to tell you this, get ready. Get ready. It's coming in America. You're not going to be able to say that marriage outside of a man and woman is wrong. There's going to be verbal police. And I don't want to be the dramatist or the catastrophist, but I will not be surprised if preachers and Christians will not be in prison for these things before my life is over in America. So get ready, because when you speak in the name of the Lord, it will not be popular. And here's what he says in the text. You better have examples to follow to give you encouragement. So he says, the prophets will be ones. So look at all the prophets. But then he does this. You know why? Because I love this part because James knows, like all of us feel, that I need more than a generic example. I need someone who really went through it with details. I need someone who has a name. So he says, and then I want you to take, remember the steadfastness of Job? His, see how Job remained under? He never lost his faith in God even though God took everything away from him. He says, see, you got a guy, here's his name. You can turn to a book of the Bible, follow his life. And see, listen, steadfastness and patience are two words in the Bible that are not denoting passivity. And by this, patience in our modern notion of it is I'm patient. I'm just waiting, doing nothing while I'm waiting, kind of sitting back, God, do it all. I'm just waiting. Please come quickly, do something That's not Bible patience. That's not Bible steadfastness. There is a future hope to it. There is a certainty. There is a level of trust to it that says, hey, while I'm waiting on God, I'm living a certain way because I believe this is going to happen. And the most of the times the word patience and steadfastness is used in the Old Testament and the New, that's something they're waiting for is God to completely reverse their circumstances. And that's why I think he chooses Job. Because you read the story of Job, the first two chapters are about how he lost everything. And the last two chapters are about how God gave him everything back times ten. Or whatever it was. So God gave him all those things. See, and he says, listen, when Jesus comes back, that's what's going to happen. So you may be having right now lost everything. You may have lost family members. People are in prison in the first century. You may have lost property. Read Hebrews 10 for yourself. The plundering of their goods, stealing their lands. You may have lost your freedom. You may have lost your rights. He said, but someday, wait on it. That'll all be reversed. And God is going to come back and he's going to turn it all around. Who are some stories in the Bible? Can you remember some? 
if it encourages you tonight, what are some stories in the Bible you say, well, it started this way, but eventually God stepped in and reversed everything? Sandy. Joseph. Tell a little bit. Tell us about a little bit. So exactly, you have, so you have at the beginning of the story all these dreams of how great Joseph will be. But as the story pursues and, and moves forward and progresses, what, what happens? Well, he becomes anything but great. I mean, he gets demoted, 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 demoted down to ease in prison with no hope. Even the guys in prison forget him when they get out. But what happens in the end when God steps in? Well, he reverses it all. And what God promised in the dream became reality. See, that's the kind of faith James is alluding to. Sixteen times, great study in of itself. I didn't put it on your exegetical sheet. Sixteen times in the book of James, it ties faith with works. You know why? Because you know how you live out your faith in the present? Well, you look to the future and you look to the past and you trust. You believe something about God. And faith is absolutely integral. And Joseph had it. And he said that. Am I in the place of God? When he had the chance. See, how is it that when you get wronged, you get abused, victimized, mistreated. And you get a chance to give it back to the people who gave it to you and then some. And you don't. How does that happen? How does it happen? Because you believe something. You believe that God's going to step in and change things like he said he was. And so you wait. You don't have to be in God's place. Remember, here's what Joseph says. I'm in God's place, not on his throne, but in this prison, going at his pace. How many years does anyone know between the time the dreams were given to him and the time they came true? Do you know how many years it was? 13 years. From the time he was 17 till he turned 30. That's a long time to wait for a fulfilled dream, isn't it? Especially with everything that happened in between. Do you know what James, the book of James starts with? In James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it has one of the Beatitudes. Okay, it says in verses, I'm sorry, chapter 1 and verse 12, Blessed is the one who endures temptation. Same construction as our verse. Which says in verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Blessed, steadfast, same as 112 is in 511. And this book has a framework of a beatitude that says the greatest blessing comes for people who stick it out, who don't quit, who have long temperance or have long tempers. They don't really go off and not short-fused, right? People who stay under the pressure. That's what this book is. And everything between those verses is how you'd go about doing that and how it would look like when you talk, your tongue, and how you approach people and what would happen if this circumstance came up in your life. 
So we need examples, he says, patterns of patience, particular names and people who've gone through things. And so he says, and I put it on your paper exegetically, take the prophets who spoke in the name, and then the last, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And he says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Last thing, ready? You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen, and the ESV translates this, the purpose of the Lord. The word purpose is a word that means the end. Something that has been accomplished. Um, brought to a finish. It's used a num- numerous times in the book of James all throughout the New Testament. And then some of the other translations I looked up says the NASV says the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That's how they translate it. One says finally, what's finally been brought about by the Lord, the NIV. In other words, here's what it says. You have seen how God brought everything to pass that he said he was and how he reversed it all. That's my translation. A lot more in it. In other words, you've seen what happened to Job, right? Job had this happen to him, and because he was patient, he stayed under the pressure, even when his wife didn't, and their house was divided over it, right? And even when his friends talked bad about him, Right Now, at the very end of the book of Job, God reverses all of that. And here's why. Why does God do it? Because you're such a great, patient person and you're awesome. No. What does the verse say, verse 11? Because this is how the Lord is. He's compassionate and merciful. He's kind. So he reverses it all so that you can be a trophy of his grace. That's what Piper said, really. Remember? Going, being in God's place, going at God's pace, all by God's grace. See, it's because Jesus is merciful, not giving you what you do deserve, and compassionate, giving you what you don't deserve. See, that's what brought you to this place. So at the end of Job, what happens? God reverses it. He brings about everything he was going to accomplish it. And what happens? Job's friends are told by God directly that you better go back and ask Job to pray for you. And he does. And he's the one who ends up praying for his friends so that God doesn't judge them. Ah, he could have really taken it out on him, couldn't he? And he could have walked around and said, oh, look, I had 10 children, now I have, and now I had this many cows or whatever, animals, camels, whatever it was. Now I got all these, right? He could have flaunted it. No, because he knows this. God didn't give me all of that stuff and reverse my circumstances because of me. No, it was his grace. That's what it says. Because the Lord is compassionate and he's merciful. So let me ask you, let me tell you this. What does that do? If I was exegeting life, how would that change? Let me ask you. Take, look at it again. I'm going to throw one more thing in there and ask you a question. The Lord is used five times. Verse 7, the coming of the Lord The coming of the Lord, verse 8, he says. Verse 10, those who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, the purpose of the Lord. Number 5, the Lord is compassionate. You see, in other words, God is in control. God is sovereign. He's on the throne. In all of your circumstances, all of the things that you have to be patient in, he's in control, right? And the reason he's going to eventually work it out to reverse everything that's gone wrong in your life, whether here or ultimately, 
It's because of he wants to be so compassionate and loving to you. Now, knowing all of that, how are you going to pray about your trials and your losses and your pains and your difficulties? When you pray, how are you going to talk to God about it? How are you going to talk to God? What would you say? What would you, let me ask you, what would you say differently than maybe what you've been saying? Yes. Right. So, exactly right. So listen, if the Lord is, if it's Lord who's sovereign, when I pray to him, you know what the number one thing I can do? Not try to get out of that, but to surrender to him. So here's the, here's the thing. Can you handle it that knowing that you will get out of your circumstances someday and it all be reversed? But let me ask you this. Does it have to be now? Does it have to be now? Or can you wait? We, we live in a culture of instant gratification, right? I mean, remember when you got, had dial-up internet? Remember that? All that noise stuff? And you go, like, this is crazy. I can draw it faster, right? And then you got, you got high-speed internet. And you're going like, oh, this is awesome. Until whatever the next highest level was. And you go, this is terrible. It used to be awesome. And it moved from awesome to terrible, and now we had 1G and 2G on your phone, and now we're going to 5G. And I can't wait for 10G. I don't know when that's coming out. but I mean, wh- why? Because it's never enough. I mean, it's never enough. I, have, I, had, I had those little iPad things. Like little, what was, that was called iPad, iPod, right? Remember the iPod, right? And iPod, and then I had iPad, and then I have iMonster. Look at the size of this thing. And pretty soon, it's going to be like out here, I could scream something. Why? Because we have to have bigger, better now. But go to God like that, see what happens. But how about this, telling him, God, you know what's more important to me? Not that you get me out of this, but you make me more like you. See, he's, he's waiting for that. He says, what do you really want? You want better circumstances or a better heart? A better love for me? A better capacity to reach to people? To give the gospel? See, what do, you, what do you really want? And James says, see, this is what it's all about. The Lord's gracious and compassionate. He will reverse it. He will change everything. He'll take care of all those people. Those circum- he will take care of it. The question is, can you wait between the two reigns? Can you handle that? What if it isn't now? What about Johnny Erickson taught us in 16? She's not getting out of the wheelchair, but she can handle it. Don't get me wrong. She'll handle it every day as she struggles through it, but she will handle it. Will you? See, God wants to know that tonight. See, that may be the difference between you quitting and you finishing. See, here's what we need, patience and steadfastness. And to get it, we have to keep looking at the future and keep looking at the past. And together, God will say, this is the present I have for you. This is how you wait for me and never, never quit. Let's pray. Father,
Help us. I don't even know tonight all the specific, particular struggles and trials that people in this room are going through. Financial, physical, health, moral, ethical. They're trying to hold out. Trying to do right. But to struggle every day to stay under that pressure. To struggle when the heavy hand of God is on your life and molding you and it hurts. The pain is there. To be cruciform, to be made into your image more is never a completely painless process. Dying to ourselves and taking up our cross is no easy task. We can't do it. We need your heart and we need spiritual steroids. We need strength that comes on the inside from our relationship with you. And we need it every day, every day. Or we'll quit. We will. We'll quit marriages. We'll quit jobs. We'll quit relationships. We'll quit churches. And God forbid we'd ever quit you. Help us not to quit. But God, do what's necessary in our lives. Grant us patience and steadfastness that we might be more like Jesus through all these difficulties and trials while we wait between the rains. We pray in your name. Amen.